He's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. So I live with, my wife is a software engineer. Everybody I interact with every day is a software engineer, uh, like in my normal life. Uh, and we're pulling through this. They were pulling through this book, being like, oh, this is this is really good. Yeah, you you have to internalize all of this so we can stop answering your questions. <laughs> uh, you can, you know, write your own Python scripts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> will you introduce yourself and tell us uh, about the book we're here to discuss today? Yeah, um, I am Micah Lee. I work as the Director of Information Security at The Intercept, and um, I just published my first book called Hacks, Leaks, and Revelations, The Art of Analyzing Hacked and Leaked Data. Um, it's basically a it's, a, it's like a technical book, and the goal is to teach journalists, but also researchers and activists and people who are looking for a new hobby or whatever, how to analyze the floods of hacked and leaked data that are uh, getting leaked on the internet every day. Yeah, you make it sound as if there is just a flood of stuff that there's not enough people to trained people to sort through properly. Would you say that's accurate? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely accurate. Like I um I only download and look at like a small fraction of the data sets that I hear about just because I'm too busy. I, I just have if I'm like working on a project, then I just ignore everything else. <laughs> um and and I think that this is the case of, you know, the other few uh, data journalists that are doing this type of data journalism, um, there's not nearly enough of us. And so that's one of the goals of the book is to basically, you know, raise an army, make uh, a lot more people who are able to uh, have the skills that they need to analyze data sets like this. Um, yeah, exactly. So without having your book as your own guide, how did you get to the point where you're like, you know what, I've been doing this for a long enough time I, it's time for me to raise my own army how did you get there <laughs> i mean so so this is kind of the a lot of the work that i've been doing at the intercept over the last 10 years and i i didn't i, I come from a background of uh of computer science and of programming and and then really actually like web development um uh, and i had never been trained in journalism or anything like that um, but because I was working at the intercept and I kept running into these data sets, I just kind of, um, you know, used all of my technical skills and learned more technical skills along the way in order to, to figure out how things work. And I think that, uh, there were a few big data sets that I, um, spent a lot of time on and that I was realizing that not enough people at all are, are, are doing this stuff. And that really inspired me to, to write this book. What does it mean to be the director of information security for a news organization? What does that job look like day to day? So it's a very interesting job. Uh, my job might be a little bit different than than, than some others um, because I my job is like also split between doing a lot of traditional infosec work, but also doing investigative journalism myself. But yeah, I do a mix of traditional information security stuff. Like I make sure that our, uh, you know, website infrastructure is secure. I manage some vendors. I make sure that none of the endpoints that people use uh, get hacked and do phishing training and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but then I also do a lot of journalism specific work uh, involving uh, like source protection and, um, you know, figuring out how to secure sensitive data there's a lot of decisions around, you know, when it's appropriate to use cloud services and when we have to keep stuff just on our laptops. 
or, you know, occasionally when we have to keep stuff on air gap computers. So, so it's a bit different um, because, because of that, because of all of the journalism <laughs> uh, security work. Can you give us a, is there a good anecdote about the job that you can give us without getting anybody into trouble or putting them in danger? So I was thinking about this back uh, several years ago when we were reporting on Snowden documents. We went to extreme measures to keep the Snowden archive safe. Like we would use uh, air-gapped computers where we'd actually, you know, unscrew the cases and remove the networking hardware and stuff uh, whenever we were... um, uh, needed to like move a file from one airgap computer to another airgap computer, or we were getting ready to publish and we had to move it to a computer that's not airgap. We didn't trust USB sticks. Like we didn't want the USB stack to be involved. So we actually burned CDs and then we shredded the CDs when we were done with them. Um, and we had like separate USB uh, CD drives that are like, these are the airgap ones and these are the not airgap ones and things like that. Um, but Every time we published a story based on NSA documents that were top secret, you know, as standard standard journalist practice, we needed to reach out to the NSA press office and ask them for comment. And we would also, um, you know, give them a chance to tell their side of the story and tell them what we're like accusing them of doing, basically. And we also wanted to show them the documents we were planning to publish to to see if they had any arguments for why we shouldn't. Um, We never actually didn't publish something because of something they said. But Basically, like the NSA was like, okay, just uh, email us these documents. And we were just like, you mean like just plain text email, like just copy them to our computers that we never use them on and then just like attach them. And they were like, yeah. And it took years of Snowden journalism before we finally got them to make a PGP key. But the PGP key, they were basically like wanting um, to have very strict rules around it. They're like, encrypt each document separately and just attach the encrypted files don't actually encrypt the content of your email and i think that basically the nsa is like terrified of the press office because these are the people who have security clearances have access to top secret documents and are talking to journalists all the time and they really don't want one of these people talking to journalists in a way that they can't be monitoring and so yeah i just thought that was pretty fascinating yeah the public affairs official uh sometimes will step in it right and like, how often does the NSA talk to the press anyway about anything, really? Every time we publish a story, we would, you know, request comment from them. And every time they have no comment. So they, they just like, they, they want to know what's coming up, though. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm thinking about it now. This is a tangent. But you with these three letter organizations, you have this weird thing that they're doing in like the last 10 years where they are drip feeding old information from like the Cold War era onto like the their reading rooms. Right. And there's fascinating stuff in there. And like the, they have podcasts where they where they talk about all this old stuff where they're going through this old material, but it's very much on their terms. Right. They're controlling the narrative of their back catalog. It's something interesting to point out. Um, so. Uh, Emily, can I set you up for your, yeah? Yeah, no, I feel like it's even worse given, and and we'll talk about this later on in in our discussion. Um, It's been a bad week for the journalism world. Um, Lots of layoffs. And one of the common refrains that, you know, people will use when people journalists announce that they're being laid off is, you know, learn to code. So there's obviously a learn to code joke somewhere in all of here. But obviously, data journalism is so important and has only become more important Like as the years have gone on. We've seen newsrooms really spin up these investigative data teams. 
et cetera. Um, how important have you seen these skills becoming in your time in journalism? Because I know you said that you started off, you know, on the computer science programming side of things. Back when I started uh, big archives of data, like big data sets, like the Snowden archive or like the, um, you know, the Chelsea Manning leaks, uh, those were very rare. They happened sometimes, but but they weren't common at all. And now it, it is literally like pretty much every day. There's like, like if you uh, follow ransomware groups, you could just go to their websites and just download data from like dozens of companies they hacked. And, you know, some of them might have journalistic value. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's really, really, really common. Um, and so I think that uh, this type of data journalism skills they're more important than they've ever been. And I think that that's just going to increase over time. Um, and yeah, like, like the book does teach you to learn to code. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but I want to like make it clear that it doesn't require any prior experience at all. It's like designed to be really accessible and really friendly. All you need is a computer, an internet connection, a hard drive with about a terabyte of free space, and then just enough curiosity and willingness to learn new skills. Only a terabyte? That's all we need? Uh, yeah, about a terabyte. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of space. It's because you have to, you download Blue Lakes, which is like 250 gigabytes, and then you have to extract Blue Lakes, which is like, you know, doubles in size because it's all zipped up and stuff. And then there's a few other data sets, but that's the big one. Um, but yeah, like, like you, a lot of people do find a lot of this stuff kind of intimidating, um, like uh, typing commands into terminals and writing Python code and stuff. But the book walks you through the process from the very beginning. And I like hold your hand the entire way and, and try to uh, be as accessible and as friendly as I can. Yeah. And I feel like what a lot of people miss is that data journalism isn't replacing, you know, the classic, you know, shoes on the ground, boots on the ground journalism that we see in like, you know, 90s 1950s 60s you know cop investigative movies and stuff like that um one of the things that i have found interesting you know throughout my career especially you know working on the tech side of journalism is just how you can go from these massive data sets these massive leaks and databases that are either leaked to you or just leaked publicly and then you know you spend time within them and you're able to find these stories that are basically hidden in plain sight. How how does that process work? How do you know what to look for? Yeah, it can be challenging and it depends. My So my book is full of all these hands-on projects where you download uh, real data sets to work with. And so I, I mentioned Blue Leaks. Um, uh, so Blue Leaks is, you know, hundreds of gigabytes. It was uh, data that was hacked from hundreds of different U.S. law enforcement websites in the summer of 2020 in the middle of the Black Lives Matter uprising, and it's full of evidence of uh, police misconduct. And basically, like, one of the tools that's really helpful is um, uh, search tools. So uh, Aleph is an example. Aleph is this tool that uh, was developed by the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. And so um, uh, you could take Blue Leaks, you could index the entire thing in Aleph, and what it does is it looks through every single file. It extracts all the text. It um, uh, uh, like does entity extraction. So it pulls out all the email addresses and phone numbers and like social security numbers and whatever else it finds. And it lets you search the entire thing. And it also does OCR, so uh, op optical character recognition. So um, it works with like scanned documents and images. 
And so, uh, uh, yeah, with the whole needle in the, in the haystack th- thing, you uh, the way that I would typically start this is I would search for some things that I'm interested in. So, like, maybe I would search for the city that I live in or the name of a politician or something. And then using search tools like that, you kind of narrow the field of, of what you start focusing on. Um, and yeah, there's there's a, a chapter that teaches you how how to use Aleph, how to set it up on your own computer and do it with any uh, any data sets you want. And there's also like a lot of other um, uh, things like just grep. It's a command line tool. It's incredibly useful for being able to filter filter data. So, but but yeah, you're never gonna you're never gonna get away with uh, uh, get away from just like manually looking through the haystack. Like, I, I mean, I think that some people are like think that maybe AI can do it for you. I kind of don't really agree. But um, uh, yeah, in the end, like you're you're definitely gonna spend many 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 hours just clicking through, reading documents, taking notes, and then based on what you find, uh, you know, that's where your investigation goes. And where do you find data sets? Like one of my most fa- my favorite things to do is um, read through thousand page Pentagon budgets because there's always there's always stories in there buried in weird places and I'm control Fing and I'm looking for F thirty five or whatever Department of Energy stuff is a good one. Where do you where do you find data and what is DDoS secrets or DDoS? I'm saying it wrong. I call it D- DDoS, DDoS secrets. secrets yeah. <laughs> um, distributed Denial of Secrets. So Distributed Denial of Secrets is this nonprofit transparency collective. I work really closely with them. They're kind of like a public library of hacked and leaked data sets, and it's specifically curated for journalists. And um, uh, it's great. It's, it's DDO at secret, ddosecrets.com. And you go there and you can um, uh, see all of the data sets that they've released, and you can download them. Um a lot of the data is available for everyone. Some of the data is called limited distribution, which means you have to request access for it. And that's basically to protect privacy because a lot of these data sets have like tons of personal information. And so um, uh, DDoS Secrets like has relationships with journalists and sometimes with like academic researchers and then they, they, they share it in this way. They don't end up just publishing like tons of private information from innocent people. Um, so DDoS Secrets is like a really good source for data sets. And that's uh, where I get a lot of the data that I work with myself and, and all the data sets in the book that are examples are all downloaded from DDoS secrets. Um, but th- this is just like a tiny sample of the data that's actually out there. There's like, like you were just talking about, you know, thousand page government documents. <laughs> um, but also, uh, you know, some of the data is totally public. Um, then you can just scrape it from the internet uh, like a good example, I mean, DDoS Secrets made this a lot easier for people, but uh, the parlor scrape. Um, so January 6th, uh, 2021, when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, they uh, all had phones on them and they all recorded themselves doing all of this stuff on their phones. And then they posted these videos in real time to the social network called Parler. And a lot of these videos included uh, like metadata, like the GPS coordinates um, on their phones. And so after January 6th, Parler um, uh, was basically kicked off of Google Play and kicked off of the Apple App Store um, uh, because uh, basically violating their terms to, uh, like they were refusing to moderate content that incites violence. And then AWS also announced that they were going to kick them off. and uh, But they gave them a few days. And so 
um, someone like during uh, Donk Envy is her name during the uh, uh, this few day period while the parlor data was still there, like worked to download it was something like fifty four terabytes of videos. So basically everything that had been uploaded to Parlor. It was over a million videos. And the ironic thing is it was just downloading it from an AWS like S3 bucket and then topping it to a different S3 bucket. But anyway, uh, yeah, that data, uh, uh, there's a whole chapter on like working with that data and figuring out how to, um, you know, like take this million videos and write a Python script that like looks through all the metadata and finds the ones that have GPF coordinates uh, in Washington, D.C. and were filmed on January 6th and then how to map them and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, so that's an example of like totally public data. But then there's also, yeah, like hacker groups a lot of times have Telegram channels where they just post data that they steal. Ransomware groups a lot of times run like Tor Onion services uh, that have all the data you can download from them. And then there's also just like so much misconfigurations with data out there. There's like S3 buckets that are totally open that people just discover sometimes. Um, and there, there's also like a, a good example, the uh, American College of Pediatricians. So this is a group that the Southern Poverty Law Center calls an anti-LGBTQ hate group. They wrote like an amicus brief in the um, decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. They had a Google Drive link that was like open to anyone and someone found it and then downloaded 20 gigabytes of documents. And now there's been some uh, journalism based on that data. And so, so yeah, the data sets are everywhere. The data, there's just so much data. And if you just look, poke around a little bit, you can find it. And um, there's a lot of really interesting revelations in there. And there's like nobody looking at it. <laughs> How do you know when you found a story? Um, I mean, so, okay. So there's a lot of data sets out there that are just completely like not interesting in terms of journalism. There's like, you know, like here's a list of uh, all of the customers of some company or something. And it's like, like, unless there's, you know, something that you think is in the public interest, then, then like, okay. Uh, sucks that those customers data was breached <laughs> or whatever. Um, I think that the stories are really like when you find, um, you know, evidence of, of corruption or evidence of crimes or, um, uh, you know, like, like if you have internal chats and you, you, you find people being like really racist or really sexist or uh, uh, things like that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, a lot of times a data set comes and you might be really excited about it. And then you spend a bunch of time looking through it and nothing really comes from it. Um, Actually, an example of this is, is I looked through this set of data from uh, uh, Oakland, the city of Oakland. Um, the city of Oakland was hit with ransomware, and I guess they didn't pay their ransom, and the data was uh, put online. And so I downloaded a copy of it, and I, I, I don't think that—I think that there definitely still might be stories in there, and I just didn't spend enough time thoroughly looking, but basically, like— you know, there's a lot of information about all the lawsuits against the city of Oakland, but not like a lot of like, not like their internal deliberations or anything like that. And I just spent a while and uh, didn't really find much, even though, you know, there's a little stuff about the Oakland police. There's like some potentially interesting stuff, but, um, but yeah, so I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it's subjective. And I think that it's really about like what's news, what people will are, are really interested in, in uh, knowing about. And also, you know, personally, I like, finding stories that are really going to um, have some sort of impact and change things. We were talking earlier about having to send things to the NSA to get comment, um, but not 
every organization is going to be the NSA. Not every organization is going to be somewhere that you could reach out to with a press office. How do you authenticate these data sets? Because, you know, theoretically, you got this Google Drive. It could be someone spoofing it. Um, How do you know? That entirely depends on the type of data set and, like, what the data is. And generally, you have to come up with, like, a different plan for each each story. But I have found that kind of the safest way in general is to use uh, OSINT to kind of compare publicly available information with information in the data set, data set to see if you can like corroborate it and to see if you can confirm that this stuff is, is, is real. Um, and so, okay, so here's an example. And this is um, one of the case studies that I have in the book is uh, there's this anti-vax group called America's Frontline Doctors. And they... Um, uh, during the pandemic, they made like millions of dollars essentially selling fake healthcare. They, they, you know, uh, opposed masks, opposed vaccines and stuff. And then they basically told everyone the only way to stay safe from COVID is ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And they worked with, um, uh, some private, some, some, some like small telehealth companies. And basically, a hacker had contacted me on Signal and said that they um, had hacked, I think, like, the horse pace peddlers, is what they they said. And uh, they sent me, uh, like, a bunch of data. It was only about 100 uh, megabytes, but, like, when I extracted it, it turned out to be tons and tons and tons of data. It turned out that it, this was all patient records and prescription records. It was, like, medical records of America's frontline doctor's patients. And... I did all this research. I figured out like, you know, like how much money they really were making, how like the scale of the scam and everything like that. This actually led to a congressional investigation, but I didn't know if this data was real or not. And so the way that I ended up authenticating it is I figured, okay, this is, these are like, uh, you know, anti-vaxxers. They're also, it was also like America's frontline doctors is very like, connect. it was like kind of started as part of the Trump 2020 campaign. It's like connected to that. And like Simone Gold, the the person who started it is um, a January 6th insurrectionist. So there was like, there's a lot of like Trump, like kind of anti-democracy overlap. So I figured that probably some of these patients have Gab accounts and Gab is this right-wing social network. There was this totally other Gab breach that um, included like 38,000 email addresses of Gab users. So what I did is I grabbed all the email addresses of America's frontline doctor's patients and all the email addresses from this Gab data breach and compared them. And I found a bunch of overlaps where they're like, okay, there's here are some Gab users that also are allegedly America's frontline doctor's patients. So then I went through their Gab profiles and just read them all. And then I found a handful of them that were talking about, oh yeah, America's frontline doctors finally sent me my hydroxychloroquine. And the like dates lined up. And so that made me really confident that this, this data was real. And so that's just an example. Yeah, pu- publicly avowed horse paced users. Exactly. I mean, actually, one of the conversations was specifically talking about like, like the animal supply stores are all out and like, what am I going to do? And then they're like, oh, finally, I got I got my stuff from America's Frontline Doctors. Wild. I have what may I have a curveball question uh, that may be very stupid, but it occurred to me thought thought I would throw it out there. I remember the end days of Napster, uh, aging myself, dating myself. That one of the ways that uh, the music industry would handle the piracy problem is that they would flood the zone with fake versions of the songs. So you would download a, you would download something you thought was Madonna's new single. And it was Madonna berating you for downloading something. 
Um, and in this way, they fought back. Do you see? Do you ever see a situation? If I were uh, somebody that was sitting on large data sets as part of my job, if I was a Fortune 500 company, I would perhaps, in the event of a breach, train a large language model to generate fake fake data and then also flood the zone. Uh, do you ever think about anything like that? I know that's kind of a weird, far-flung, hypothetical question. I mean, yeah, I definitely think that there is is like there's there's a disinformation everywhere, and I think that when you are reporting on something, and then like this, there's always a risk that like, okay, I have confirmed that some of the information in this data set I have is authentic. But and that makes me like more confident that it's all authentic. But I didn't confirm every single thing. Like maybe you can confirm that an email in an email dump was actually sent because you asked the other person if they sent it and they said yes. That doesn't mean that the rest of the email that you have is all real. Uh, and so I think that like a good thing to do is just report on what you've confirmed. So uh, yeah, if you're going to be publishing this email, then just publish the email that and just make sure that that what you're publishing is is real. You've authenticated it. And so even if there is like some fake stuff, like actually I remember, um, uh, I think I, I might be getting the details wrong, but WikiLeaks published, I think a data set from Syria or something. And it later turned out that the original data set included some like information about big bank transfers between like people in Syria and people in Russia. And that information was like deleted from the data set. And so it was like an it was like real a real leaked data set, but like some of the information was just like WikiLeaks apparently deleted it before publishing it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. Like I think that this definitely has happened in the past. I think that especially with LLMs with uh, like AI, it's going to get a lot uh, worse. Um, but this is just true with everything. Like just the entire zone is just flooded with nonsense. And I think that that's true with, uh, with data sets too. And so I think it's just really important to do the work to authenticate everything that you're going to, that you're going to publish. All right. Cyber listeners want to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, cyber listeners, we are back on with Michael Lee talking about hacks, leaks, and revelations. What's the most interesting exploited data set you've seen? Okay, so one that I find really interesting is the uh, Epic hack. So Epic is E-P-I-K. In 2021, Anonymous hacked Epic, and they called called this hack Epic Fail. And uh, basically, Epic's a hosting provider. It's run by a Christian nationalist. It's used by... Um, a lot of like really far right organizations and groups and websites and stuff. Um, uh, they do domain name registration. And so uh, a lot of the places where like mass shooters have posted their manifestos um, have been websites hosted by Epic. And so that's how they're able to stay online, like, like, like Gab, like 8chan um, uh, and things like that. Um, and like the Oath Keepers, actually. Um, 
this was probably like the biggest own of a company that I'd ever seen. And the reason is because like they, they had, so uh, the data that anonymous uh, released was, um, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of MySQL databases full of tons of information. And like the really interesting stuff in there was Epic ran. So they were a domain name registrar. They ran a, who is privacy service. And you can look behind, you can peek behind the who is privacy for all of those domains. So I like, like in, in the, the chapter on um, SQL, um, on SQL, in my book, it shows you how to like go and, fi- and like look up oathkeepers.org and figure out the, uh, like if you do a, a public who is search on it, it says like this is protected by, pri- by a privacy service. But then you can run the, the like MySQL queries and discover like, okay, Stuart Rhodes is the owner of this and here's his like address and phone number and stuff. But then, you know, here is the technical contact of it. And, um, and there's more information. And so I think that that's really interesting. Um, but also this whole Epic hack, like it included, um, the Texas GOP website. It's like a WordPress site and included like a SQL dump of it and all the files for it. And so actually like when I was looking into it, I recreated it in Docker containers and like spun up the website and then like changed the admin password and logged in. And I was just like, look around the back end of the Texas GOP website um, cause th- this whole hack was like in response to the Texas heartbeat law, um, which was like the biggest restriction of abortion rights in the U.S. before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, but it also, this hack also included entire like VM images. So it included like the heart, the, the images of hard drives of the virtual machines that were running Epic's software. And so like one of them was like GitLab. So it's basically like, like an open source version of GitHub and it included like all their source code repositories but also all of their like issues and pull requests and all the continuous integration. So like when they merge code to production, like all of the secrets that that actually connect to the production servers, I don't know. It was wild. So I think that that was probably one of the most fascinating (laughs) data sets that I had seen. My real reaction to that is like, damn, are people like that stupid? Like, like not to, you know, to victim blame the people like this that are, you know, going to be... It just seems like this is like a nightmare for anyone who is on the opposite end of this. Yeah. Should a regular person, aside from, you know, doing password keepers, et cetera, et cetera, what should we be concerned about, you know? who, who <laughs> yeah. should, Who's fishing us that we should be afraid of? I mean... Problems like like this, when a company gets hacked and all their data gets gets breached, that is not really something that regular people can handle. That's that's like the responsibility of the company, and it's like, like I mean, I don't think that Epic was especially competent, but um, but even for competent companies, it's really hard. Like defending from hackers is a very very difficult situation. It's like much easier to find a single flaw and like hack something than it is to find every single flaw that anyone might find and defend against them all. But in terms of just ordinary people, like what you can do, like, yeah, I think that the best you can really do is um, use a password manager, have really good passwords, uh, try and like, like a lot of times there's data breaches that aren't actually um, like the whole service provider gets hacked, but instead individual accounts get hacked. So the way to make sure your account doesn't get hacked is to use two-factor authentication. Um, And, you know, like, put less information on the internet, like, like don't store all of your, or if you do put it on the internet, put it, uh, you know, in places that are encrypted. So like 
instead of um, using storing all your stuff in Google Drive, um, you know, maybe store it in uh, like Proton Drive or something like that. So then, you know, if Proton Mail gets hacked or gets law enforcement requests or whatever, they won't be able to just hand over all of your files. Um, and if you and if you are using Google Drive, I mean, that's fine. Google is actually very secure. But like, turn on. Uh, uh, Google Advanced Protection, <laughs> um, which is uh, a, a way of like really locking down your Google account. It makes it a lot harder to hack. I think that's the best that ordinary people can do is just get use good strong passwords, use two FA, uh, and and yeah, like like don't have all your conversations on Discord. Have them on Signal. <laughs> kind of piggybacking off of that, what's the most creative intrusion you've seen? Uh, I'm especially interested in any stories of really wild social engineering. Let's see. I mean, I'm not sure. So with the data sets that I get, generally, like, like they're, they're not always from hackers, but um, when they are, I have no idea how the intrusion happened. I just have the data. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so I had actually, like, like uh, uh, was thinking about this, and I thought of an intrusion, but it's not social engineering at all. But um, really wild social engineering. Um, I mean, I just remember, like... So I've worked with a lot of, um, uh, like NGOs and like human rights activists and stuff. And I remember seeing, like hearing about phishing emails that someone got that looked super convincing that, um, was basically like inviting you to a conference and being like, we'll pay for it. Like, like, you know, I know that this conference, like in Europe or, you know, somewhere, somewhere that'd be really fun to go to, but really expensive would be, uh, you know, it's perfect for you. We would just want you to like, come and attend and like maybe be on a panel or something. And, you know, we have full funding for your flight and for your, you know, per diem and for everything. And that's like, can be very enticing for like nonprofit workers <laughs> that were, especially if it like fits their interests and stuff. Um, but like, so what I was thinking is the act, like uh, a, a wild intrusion that uh, isn't social engineering was actually the America's frontline doctors uh, like telehealth companies they, cause I actually, I was talking to the hacker cause they reached out to me directly. So I asked them technically like how this hack happened. And they said it was hilariously easy to hack. And it actually like, like it's, it's, it's kind of funny how incredibly simple this is, but also how incredibly impactful it was. Um, uh, so the two companies that were hacked were Cadence Health and, uh, Cadence Health and Ravku Pharmacy. Um, Cadence Health basically was uh did like the telehealth consultation so when someone's like i want uh ivermectin they would uh pay 90 dollars and have a doctor call them on the phone and have like a, a doctor appointment basically and those cost 90 dollars. and anyone can make accounts and basically the hacker went to cadence health made an account and then just was like um uh looking at the http requests their browser made as they were like clicking around in their account and they noticed that one of the requests had their account ID in it. And it was like, like get account info slash ID. And they just, and it included all their information, but it also included in like a JSON object. It also included like their password hash. And they changed the ID to a different ID. And it included all of a different patient's information. So they just wrote a like little script that just iterated through the IDs and downloaded the patient data from 255,000 patients. And that, that was that hack. And then the other one was a uh, Ravku pharmacy. So this was like the main pharmacy that, that after they prescribed ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, they would like go to this pharmacy to fill it. 
And with your Avco, anyone can create an account with this pharmacy. And basically, I don't know how they did it, but the hacker said that they discovered a, a, a special URL that was like the super admin interface. And as long as you're logged into an account, any account at all, you have access to it. So if you're not logged in, it, it like forces you to log in. If you're logged in, you just have access to all of that stuff. And it includes like a list of all of the prescriptions that they had ever filed. And so, um, yeah, they just like scraped all that information. And actually the, uh, when I was doing this story, the Ravku CEO, I like, uh, found his phone number and called him and he didn't actually believe that they were hacked because they were like, no, that's impossible. We're HIPAA compliant. We're, we're really secure. And then I like emailed him a screenshot of the super admin interface. And he's just like, oh God, I have to call my CTO and like hung off the phone. It's really deflating. I don't know why I want there to be more of a romance to all of this, but the it, it's really deflating just how simple and just ignorant a lot of this is to me. Like it's just plain, just plain not having your shit together. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, it really is. And, but, like, also, I don't... It, it's hard to do everything well. Like, like you probably all have Google accounts. How many of your Google Docs or Google or, or folders in Google Drive are, are, have shared settings that are open to anyone with the link? Like, and do, you, or do you actually want those to be open to everyone? Or did you just not feel like finding the right email addresses to share them with? So it's like... I think that everybody does this. And so, so it's like, it's like you have to be kind of vigilant, uh, uh, vigilant with your security practices to not, uh, end up doing stuff like this. But also, like, like, yeah, if you're, if you're having patient data, if you're having like healthcare records and stuff, you absolutely should not, should have like some sort of access control, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it is deflating how easy it is, but um, not everything is as easy. I think that this is why we're seeing these data sets is because these are the these, these are the easy ones. Man, it's yeah. No, you're right. It's like, you know, some people should definitely do it. But then there are some organizations that really, really should be doing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in terms of, you know making mistakes. What are the kinds of mistakes that you see when journalists who aren't as versed in the world of hacking um, reporting on stuff like this? I mean, I think that like, really, it's just believing what companies tell them and believing what like billionaires say. (laughs) Um, Like, like, there's just so many stories, uh, you know, from the last several years about like, crypto, and how it could, you know, solve all of the problems and how it's really secure and all sorts of stuff. And then that's just like turned out to not be the case at all. So I think that like, um, uh, yeah, just, just like believing a lot of hype and not actually verifying what companies say. This is, so this doesn't really like have to do with my book or, or with data sets really, but I had, uh, in 2020, I worked on this story, um, about Zoom, um, and how uh, Zoom basically was misleading uh, all of its customers, claiming that it had end-to-end encryption and it didn't have end-to-end encryption. And this actually led to like an FTC settlement and where the FTC forced Zoom to implement real end-to-end encryption. And, and it led to like 
I forget how many millions of dollars class action lawsuit, which was pretty cool. But basically, like me and uh, Yael Gower is the, uh, the other journalist that work with it. We were just looking through Zoom's like privacy policy and asking them questions about how their end to end encryption work. And we got them to kind of admit that. Uh, well, actually, the like keys that protect the Zoom meetings are generated on Zoom servers, and we do have copies of them. And then we're like, that's not end-to-end encryption. And they're like, oh, well, we're just using a different definition of end-to-end encryption. And like, I, and I think that, that that's probably true for companies everywhere. They all just like say whatever the marketing people think sounds good. And then you really have to like look into it in detail and ask them questions. And like, you know, ideally, don't even ask them questions, like reverse engineer how their stuff works. Like, and if you can figure that out, then, um, yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's, that's the big mistake is just believing people without, without like unskeptically. The idea that you would just believe that zoom is end to end. Anyway, I'm going to let that go before it makes my brain, my, <laughs> the blood shoot out of my ears. So we mentioned discord earlier and I've been kind of fascinated by this little chat room thing that was meant for gaming, uh, coming to take on this weird oversized importance um, I, I think maybe in ways that people don't really realize. Uh, I think the big story from the end of last year was Jack Teixeira, the the DoD leaker, <laughs> was sharing things with the Discord group that was supposed to like that he'd squirreled out of a skiff. It's just strange stuff. Um, has Discord become a part of your daily life? Is it important to your work? And what are the perils there? Um, you know, I actually don't use Discord all that much. I use it like. A little bit now there's a few different servers that i'm part of but i mean i think that really like what discord is is it's like this massive like kind of semi-private place for people to communicate online and so because there's like millions and millions of people that are talking in it um that totally makes it makes sense that there's going to be leaks coming from it and the whole yeah the uh jack texiera thing where he's posting you know top secret documents about the Russia Ukraine war, basically like for clout in front of his friends. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, so, so actually like one of the, uh, one of the other case studies in my book does involve a lot of leaked discord chats. And this is from, from a bit older. This was uh, from like 2017 when uh, the, the people who were like really, really using like this, this little gaming chat thing were um, neo-Nazis. So the uh, organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, that whole thing was organized on Discord. And then so were um, uh, like, like there, there was there was like several other like 15 other Discord servers. And uh, so, yeah, like I, I talk about how like anti-fascists infiltrated these servers and then just used some software to just like once you're in a server to just go and scrape all of the chat history that they have access to for like the entire server since since it started. Um, and I think that this is uh, one of the reasons why Discord is, is, is such a big deal, because it's actually really easy for any person in a Discord server to just grab everything and that's ever been posted to that server. And then it's also easy because these are like not mostly they're not public. Mostly they're like, but they're not really that private either. Like there's, there's discord.gg links that if you find one, you can join another server. And so if you scrape an entire, I think this is what, a lot of the like infiltrators for these like Nazi chat rooms did is they'd like grab, they'd like make, get their way into one and then they would scrape it all and search for discord.gg. And then they'd find like seven others and then they just join those and scrape all of those. And I think that, um, yeah, that's one of the reasons why 
it, it's not like a, a signal group. <laughs> yeah, and there's an illusion of privacy in them that, mm-hmm. that doesn't quite actually exist, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, I think that also it's important to like, I don't know, I always have in the back of my mind that anything that is not end-to-end encrypted, like the company has access to it. So there's an illusion of privacy in your Google Docs too. <laughs> it's a lot more private, I think, than, than than Discord channels where like, you know, a bunch of strangers might join and you might not know them. But like, but um, yeah. <laughs> do you draft copy in Google uh, Google Docs or do you use something else? It depends on the story. If I if it's a story where it's just like doesn't matter, like like there, it's it's totally I'm not like don't have any source protection things, then um, uh, I do sometimes do Google Docs. Um, but uh, otherwise, I actually use Word a lot. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if, if it ha- if it has anything to do with uh, uh, like secret information or source protection or whatever, then like it's intercept policy is like, we don't use Google docs for any of that. All right. This, this one is from one of my friends who wanted me to ask this. What is the worst kind of data set system to work with? And why is it XML? (laughs) So, okay. So XML can be obnoxious, but one good thing about XML is that it's actually like an open format and there's libraries that can work with it. What I find even worse than XML is like weird proprietary crap. So like once someone sent like some surveillance videos that were from some like, um, I don't know, some some like surveillance camera company and the only, and the videos just weren't a normal video format. The only way to watch them is to like get like start up a Windows VM and install the company's like software and then you could open them from there. And you could, or you could maybe spend like hours and hours and hours trying to figure out how to like get an MP4 out of this. So like something like that is just obnoxious. And then even just like, um, I remember I worked on, or I, I, I helped with this story where it was uh, a leaked uh, Oracle database of um, uh, like Chinese police stuff that was like involved in surveilling Uyghurs. And it was an Oracle database and Oracle is like, like a proprietary database thing. And so it'd be so much easier if it was just like MySQL or Postgres or something. And none of the people that, that like, you know, we're working on this. So the tech people like were that familiar with Oracle and you have to like buy a license. And eventually we managed to figure out how to like convert it into Postgres so that we could actually work with it. But like, yeah, just weird proprietary stuff is really obnoxious. <laughs> I think. What's the most common stuff you work with? Usually like SQL and that kind of thing. Is it mostly that? Yeah, so, um, like, just collections of, like, Office documents are really common. So, like, like PDFs and, like, Word files and Excel files and things like that. Uh, email is really common. And so, normally, that's, uh, like, sometimes it's folders full of EML files, which is, like, the standard for a single email. Um, but then it, there's also, like, inbox files and PST Outlook files. There's a whole chapter called Reading Other People's Email that uh, teaches you how to deal with all of this this stuff and how to import it into Thunderbird and things like that. Um, but then uh, uh, for structured data, like JSON files, J- like JSON data and CSV spreadsheets are like really, really common. Like the America's Frontline Doctors stuff was, it was, it was just uh, nothing but JSON files and CSV files and that's it. Um, and then yeah, SQL is, is really common too. Bringing us back kind of to where we are in the present, um, you know, not not a great week for jobs in the world of journalism. 
Um, but at the same time, this is after we've had a couple of years of a lot of OSINT journalists that are just, you know, guys on the internet figuring things out. Um, how are you feeling about this industry right now? <laughs> In terms of the, like, really bad OSINT that, that doesn't necessarily really, like, mean what people think it means... I mostly just ignore all of that stuff and I just sort of mixes in with other um, kind of like, I don't know, like the internet is full of, of things of websites full of like bad reporting or misinformation or spam or like a mix of all of them. And so um, I mostly don't really look like, I, I mostly just ignore that stuff. Um, I, although I do think that, that OSINT when done well can be like really exciting and interesting, especially if you like really just, narrow it down to like, okay, I've connected these two things and here's, here's my proof. Um, uh, but in terms of the industry, I don't know. I mean, things are grim. Um, I, I'm actually, uh, very happy about the, the like kind of recent new direction of the intercept though, where, where it, it, uh, split off from first look media, which was its, its parent company. And so now it's just a completely independent nonprofit and it's, you know, um, uh, uh, like, like it seems like the inter- intercept is in a good place, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> um, the, inter- the the whole industry as a whole, I don't know. I really hope that it doesn't get sucked into too much AI. <laughs> I think it's going to in the short term. Like, it's just gonna. We're just going to have to suffer through that. I think um, until it like collapses in on itself. Uh, I think that's yeah, unfortunately think just what we're you're right. Hooray. Yay. <laughs> but you think about like you get to live through interesting times. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> uh, yeah, but maybe the AI is not going to parse the data sets as well. I don't know. Yeah. The AI is not going to parse the data sets. I mean, the AI. So, one thing that, that I found that like ChatGPT is really good at is helping you write code. So if you're if you're new to to this stuff, if you want to like follow along with my book and you're like very intimidated by the Python stuff and you're like, okay, I need to write a script that like opens a CSV file with millions of rows and then loops through each row, you can just ask ChatGPT, hey, write a Python script to open a CSV file and loop through the rows, and it'll just give you a little snippet of code. And so that sort of thing I think could actually be really helpful. But in terms of actually like finding the stuff for you or or like writing stuff for you, no. <laughs> Yeah, but like writing code, I'm actually a big favor of using it for, for helping you write code faster. I love that. Um, how often do you mess with GIS data, if at all? A little bit. Like I, um, so the whole like parlor uh, uh, data that has GPS coordinates, um, I uh, actually like while I was writing that book and like spending a lot more time with the parlor data than I had like, you know, when it came out. Uh, I was learning a lot about GIS software too, uh, too. And I, but I basically like, um, you know, figured out ways of uh, uh, like various options to, to map uh, GPS coordinates, which are pretty cool. Um, one of the things with the America's Frontline Doctors data was I have patient data and I had, uh, I had everyone's addresses, but I didn't want to like, you know, publish anyone's addresses, but I was really curious, like what states had the most people and what cities had the most people. And so I, um, wrote some code that basically like took a list of like all the patients in each city and uh, uh, geocoded those cities. So I had GPS coordinates for the cities and then I like 
maps at all. And so the article we published actually had like an interactive map where you can see where you can like scroll around and see the cities that have the most and the least uh, uh, people who are really into ivermectin and <laughs> hydroxychloroquine and probably are anti-vax and into Trump and stuff. Everyone loves a good map. Yeah. <laughs> so Emily, do you want to take this last one? Yeah. I mean, so many of our listeners, you know, we, we definitely have listeners, I'll say, who have access to data sets and might at some point, maybe that point is now, want to become a source for a journalist for whatever reason. What kind of advice would you have for them about managing risk and doing, you know, risk assessment on their end before, you know, becoming a source? So I would say, first of all, if you're thinking about this at all, don't do any sort of things on your work devices. Like, like don't don't search for information about like how do you leak to a newsroom from your like work computer. Um, don't use your work computer or your work phones as much as possible. But generally, that's not possible because generally, if you have access to a data set, it's only from your work device. Um, uh, if you are thinking of leaking something, um, it's really good to think about how many people have access to the thing that you're leaking. It's it's like a big difference if you're going to like leak an email that was sent out to your whole company than it is if you're going to leak an email that was sent out to three people. Um, and so I think that it's it's always important to just think like the leak investigator. So like after after you know, let's say you become a source, you leak some stuff, a journalist publishes an article. Like at that point, when this is public, that's when they're going to start investigating it. And so, um, like, think about what they have access to. They're going to try and like and and come up with a, a suspect list and narrow it as much as possible. And so, um, uh, yeah, like think about all of the systems that you use to keep logs. Like, did you know that every single time you open any single Google Doc, there's a log in that in in, in a, a Google Admin. So like like the administrator of your Google Workspace could go in and just like look at a document and see like, oh, this person loaded it at these specific times. And then they loaded it, you know, every day for a few times. And then like a week later, this document was published in the news. Hmm. Right. So like all that stuff is public. And I think that like thinking about that is uh, is is <laughs> the most helpful thing to do. Um, yeah. Just like be aware that everything that you do is basically under surveillance. Everything leaves a trail. And if you want to try and, and, and do this um, uh, as safely as possible, then like either try to like leave as little trail as you can, or try to make sure that like your trail is mixed up with like thousands of other people's trails. Michael Lee, thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through this. The book is hacks, leaks and revelations, the art of analyzing hacked and leaked data. And it's out now. Yes. It's out now, um, and you can see, go to hacksandleaks.com. That's the book's website. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. 